0: can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Hui Jun Mai, Assistant Professor of Premodern Chinese Literature at the University of California, Los Angeles, and I'm your host for this episode today. So today I'll be chatting with Thomas Kelly about his new book, The Inscription of Things, Writing and Materiality in Early Modern China, published recently by Columbia University Press this November. Thomas Kelly is assistant professor of Chinese literature at Harvard University. His research and recent publications cover a wide range of topics in the history of writing, material culture, and pre-modern media studies. This book that we'll be discussing today, The Inscription of Things, is his first book. So congratulations, Tom. Um, This is a novel and exciting account of the relationship between literature and material culture in late-imperial China. The book examines a variety of inscribed objects from this period. And demonstrates beautifully how in this tumultuous era, the practice and physical act of mark making became an effective tactic for people to grapple with a range of difficult issues. In particular, the materiality and technologies of writing amidst the traumatic wars and dynastic transitions, loss and death. So readers interested in the late Ming to early and mid Qing literature objects and media studies in general will find lots of interesting things in these fascinating books, especially given the book's foregrounding of a diverse array of historical actors. You'll find among the exciting cast of colorful characters in this book not just poets and writers who you would normally expect, but also the lives of seal covers, pawn keepers. Inkstone makers, merchants, among others. And now without further ado, let's welcome Tom. Tom, welcome to the show. Uh, so I wonder if you could start off by telling us a bit about yourself and how you became interested in Chinese literature.
0: Um, thank you so much, Hui Jun, for, for having me and for, for reading the book to begin with. Um yeah, so I teach um pre-modern Chinese literature. Um, but initially, I guess I was probably more interested in uh, writers from the modern period. So my first exposure to Chinese literature was really modern Chinese literature. Um, and I became kind of progressively more interested in the way these writers were dealing with the past and with tradition, um, which led me, I think, to sort of the Ming-Ching period. I find that this really incredible moment where writers... Um, sort of anticipate things that happen um, in the modern period, but are also looking back into the tradition. So I felt that to really understand um, Chinese literature, it was really important to to get a sense of, um, of that particular period. And also, I guess, um, it's kind of a bit of a cliche, but one of the first works of Chinese literature that I really fell in love with was Dream of the Red Chamber or Story of the Stone, um, which is actually in many ways a book about Mark making an inscription I mean it kind of begins with an inscription on a stone um so I didn't make any connections when I first read it but that was definitely sort of this gateway into this incredible world of fiction and drama and poetry um so yeah I think Specifically, that's kind of what drew me to studying ming Qing literature. But I've always, I guess, with this book, I've always been interested in the relationship between literature and the visual arts in general, not just in China, but, you know, elsewhere in the world. Um, And I think I've always been fascinated by writing that is... um, aware of itself as being something that is displayed or is there for view or the way it engages with other types of visual art. So that's kind of been a longstanding interest, um, quite aside from studying Chinese and studying classical Chinese. So yeah.
1: That's what you come to write, the inscription of things. Um, So and also maybe a bit about what is the book about?
0: Yeah, so uh, thank you for the wonderful questions. So the book is essentially about um, literary practices of writing on the surfaces of objects. So uh, forms of poetry and prose that were intended to be carved onto solid objects or that were written with the intention of being carved. Um, And yeah, it came out of um, sort of a larger interest in the relationship between literature and objects in this period. And um, it was something that I had started to work on in graduate school. Um, I took this quite sort of inspiring seminar in my my first year on um, the role of objects in Chinese literature, which involved looking at sort of poetic strategies of representing objects, fictional strategies of bringing objects to life. It really opened up for me Um, The possibilities of literary studies, because I felt a lot of this work was really engaged with kind of key issues in the interpretation of literature. So thinking about voice, thinking about metaphor, thinking about um, naming, but it was also attuned and attentive to developments in say anthropology or the history of material culture or even sort of economic and social history so it, for me it was really exciting field of study in general thinking about literature on objects because it really brings together sort of poetics and the study of you know literature as literature with this kind of more open engagement with other disciplines and with other fields of study. Um, And so that was something that kind of really inspired me at the beginning of graduate school. Um, And I I did my PhD at the University of Chicago. And at that time, there were a lot of scholars in other fields working on materiality, on objects, um, on thing theory. Um, And so I didn't sort of like have this great idea that I'm just going to sort of take this, you know, work and try and apply it to Chinese literature. But I really wanted to to write and to think about Chinese literature in a way that could engage or to speak to those kinds of communities and those other people that I was sort of interacting with on campus. Um, So that was sort of an initial kind of development that led me to this kind of broader topic of thinking about literature on objects and objects in literature. Um, But as I was working on this, it felt like one of the kind of the key issues that you need to sort of take into account to understand this relationship hadn't really been addressed or hadn't really been dealt with, which was, you know, what did it actually mean to to sort of turn an object into a text or to write on an object in a way that you can make it something that is read and interpreted as a kind of a literary text. So it was kind of a quite a basic question, um, and the, the dissertation that led to the book was really an attempt to try and think through that question. Why did writers choose to write on objects? How does the act of writing on an object transform the relationship between um, the surface of the inscription and the content of the inscription? How do we make sense of the interaction between words and objects? So that, that was sort of the initial kind of inspiration or or stimulus for the project.
1: Thank you, that's that's wonderful. and. And um the keywords that I think you highlighted for us in your um beautiful response that uh sort of give us an idea of what we're going to talk about in the upcoming uh 10 minutes or so. So um two things well actually three things uh first of all, um, we'll be engaging this idea of inscription, and we'll be talking about what exactly is this uh, idea and this object of Ming and this practice of inscribing text onto hard surfaces, right? And secondly, uh, we'll take up this idea that you, um, sort of, you sort of put us in the context of your graduate studies. First thing first, um, you begin the book by introducing the act of carving words onto objects. Uh, for example, cups and ladders, animal horns, walking sticks, boxes, pens, daggers, teapots, and so on and so forth. So a really fascinating range of objects that are used in every day, uh, but also really intricate uh, and, and beautifully made objects of art. Um, so this act of carving words onto hard surfaces results in a literary form uh, called ming in Chinese, and, uh, and also in translation is inscription. So can you uh, tell us what is ming? And how would you posit the place of this genre or this form of literary writing in Chinese literature? Uh, And also um, what and why are we looking at Ming in particular?
0: Thank you. So yeah, so Ming, I think in Chinese, it can be both a verb and a noun. So as a verb, it means to carve, to engrave, to incise, um, to sort of use a knife to make a mark. But as a noun, as you said, it can refer to um, a particular literary genre, which is fairly amorphous and quite hard to define. But um, the book really was interested in the relationship between these two senses of the word. So how to understand Ming as both an activity, as an act, as an action, um, but also how to think of Ming as a type of, as a literary form, as a literary genre. I definitely didn't want to do sort of a genre study because I find that Pretty <laughs> limiting, but I do think Ming is a very interesting genre. So in classical Chinese literature, Ming is typically regarded as prose, but actually, you know, a vast majority of them are formally indistinguishable from poems. So that was already something that was quite interesting. That it's this this form that's really at the interface between prose and poetry, um, and I think yeah, a lot of the texts. That i'm dealing with in the book um even employ fairly innovative forms of free verse so they mix prose and verse in quite interesting ways um so it's a fairly minor genre i think in the study of chinese literature i think if you do like a survey of chinese literature maybe it's you might not even read Ming. maybe there's like one or two that would pop up in like a kind of a course book um but this was kind of interesting to me as a problem because the concept of Ming um, leads us back to sort of really central questions in the history of Chinese writing. So uh, literary critics in the pre-modern period thought of Ming as the oldest literary genre, as the kind of the most ancient, earliest literary genre. And yet by the late imperial period, it had become this seemingly kind of minor or superfluous form of writing Kind of prose or free verse or you know types of poetry on desktop objects or studio objects and so for me that was a really interesting conceptual problem is like how do we make sense of Ming both as this very esteemed venerable ancient thing but also as this kind of seemingly marginal peripheral literary practice that is associated with um, you know small objects desktop objects um writing tools, things like that. Um, Ming is also, you know, a, a, a form that is often studied in terms of its reception. So for scholars of calligraphy or epigraphy, Ming are often interpreted as you know documents that can give us some sort of information about the development of Chinese writing. So you would read a Ming and study the calligraphy that is used for it. Um, the rubbings that have been made of it, uh, maybe some of the historical information that it contains. Um, And this is a very sort of well-established field in Chinese studies. But I was interested in the way in which writers continued to create and make inscriptions in this form, particularly at a time in the Ming Qing period where it doesn't really do what inscriptions are supposed to do, which is to sort of preserve writing and to sort of monumentalize writing. Right. So, in the in the Chinese tradition, the earliest inscriptions on bronze or in stone, are uh, intended to you know to make words permanent to ensure the sort of the longevity or the lastingness of writing. Um, but by the Ming Qing period, if you want to ensure that writing survives carving your words on a stone, you know, on an ink stone or on a table, it doesn't really ensure that. It's sort of, <laughs> it almost kind of a of an intuitive thing. You know, if you really want to ensure your writing survives, you just print hundreds and hundreds of copies of a book with your writing in it and hope that one of them somewhere, you know, survives. Um, so that became kind of a key question in the project. You know, why why write on solid objects when it's no longer a way of ensuring permanence or longevity, you know, what do these writers hope to obtain in this act? Um, And yeah, I think there's an interesting question also about, you know, the negotiations and the tensions between Ming as a form that's associated with elite commemoration. So whether that's um, the production of stele, whether that's the production of epitaphs. So on the one hand, it's a very serious, austere monumental form. But in, um, you know, in its use as a form of writing on smaller objects, on portable objects, on everyday objects, it can become almost quite a playful form. Like it can allow writers to assume the voice of an object, to identify with the properties of a broken object, to uh, project their own biographies onto an object. So I became interested also in this negotiation between maybe the kind of the austere, serious, monumental, commemorative function of the genre in its earliest stages, so in the sort of the the pre-imperial or the classical period, but then also how in sort of the later, in later times, it becomes this pretty interesting tactic for just refabricating and reimagining the objects of everyday life, so cups and tables and chairs and inkstones and brushes and things like that. Um, and it can evoke a type of intimacy, a way of thinking about the humility, the humbleness of the writer, and their kind of, you know, their precarious material existence. So I think, you know, even though it's a really peripheral form in the history of Chinese literature, I actually think it raises really important questions, really sort of central questions. Um, and many of the most famous writers of the Mingqing period engaged with this form very seriously and quite extensively. Um, So I actually began the project working on um, probably one of the most famous writers of the Ming Qing transition, a figure named Zhang Dai, who is a very canonical writer and, you know, anyone who studies late imperial literature reads his work. Um, And reading sort of a lot of his kind of memoirs and his reminiscences of Ming life, I found that actually A lot of these texts, a lot of his kind of reflections on the Ming-Qing transition were based upon or were originally sort of inspired by small inscriptions that he had made on objects. And so that also became a kind of a key prompt for the project, which was, you know, why does this really famous writer that everyone reads, everyone knows about, you know, people have written about his life, he's probably even known in in the English speaking world as a famous writer of that period. but why were so many of his writings still kind of linked or conceptually related to this act of writing on an object?
1: In the book, you do examine a wide range a wide range of inscribed objects. So I wonder if... Um, I have many favorites, <laughs> including uh, the inscription on tea leaves, so something that is supposed to be consumed and not to be preserved. I wonder if you want to highlight from... Uh, the perspective of the author of the book, any specific examples uh, that you find particularly uh, captivating or representative of your overall argument?
0: Uh, Thank you. Yeah, I mean, there are quite a lot of different examples, but I guess I could say a little bit about maybe the example that I began with, or sort of one of the earliest cases that I was looking at, which, um, which is now chapter three. So when I was working on this this phenomenon in the late Ming, I, I realized that you know one of the most commonly inscribed objects uh, was actually an ink cake or an ink stick. Um, so, I think in, in sort of the late Ming period, we see you know many of the most famous poets, prose stylists, intellectuals, um, even sort of Jesuit missionaries like Matteo Ricci uh, contribute to this culture of writing or making a mark that was intended to be reproduced on an ink stick or an ink cake, which, um, you know, for for those who haven't sort of used it before, is basically uh, a mixture of um of certain glue that is preserved in a kind of a solid shape, but you would grind it and mix it with water to generate a liquid ink that you would then use for writing. And so this example I think is is fascinating for a number of reasons. Um, the first is that it reveals one of the kind of the the kind of the historical arguments I make in the book, which is that the most commonly inscribed objects during the Ming Qing period tend to be objects that are associated with writing. So they tend to be objects that are kind of connected to uh, calligraphy, the scene of writing, um, and the act and the kind of the material labor of writing. So this was sort of a key concern um, in my project, which was to to think about what these writers were doing in writing on writing tools or writing on the implements of literary expression, how that act maybe reveals ways in which they were thinking about the act of literary creativity in general. Um, And so, yeah, the, the question of the relationship between inscription and writing technology at this time becomes quite interesting because it's not just a case of thinking about the ways in which um, the the object or the surface upon which an inscription is carved informs the way we interpret it. What I'm trying to suggest is that these writers are also imaginatively or creatively trying to think about the meaning of the tools and the objects they use for literary self-expression. So it's a two-way dynamic. It's not just this kind of crude media studies approach where like the medium is the message and everything is determined by the materiality of the format. I'm really interested in the ways in which writers are still able to question or to um, problematize the relationship between their writing and the surfaces, the tools, the devices they use to materialize it. So yeah, so I think the ink cake is an interesting example because it kind of captures this, this broader tension, which is that ming Qing writers tend to be primarily concerned with writing on objects associated with with the scene or with the act of writing um the other thing that's you know fascinating about an ink stick is that as you suggested you know it's not an ob- object that's designed to be preserved although a lot of these ink sticks were kind of luxury objects that were designed to be given as gifts and kind of kept away for you know for a rainy day like a, a fine bottle of wine or something but um, but ostensibly It's supposed
1: ink- to be consumed slowly.
0: <laughs> slowly, yeah. So, but, it, but ostensibly an ink stick is supposed to be ground down and used up. Um, and so that for me raised really interesting questions about questions around permanence and longevity and durability. So, as I was saying, you know, in the earliest examples of inscription in the Chinese tradition, the earliest writers to sort of theorize Ming they talk about it as a way of ensuring longevity. So the Eastern Han writer, Sayong will say, you know, inscription is a way of writing on metal and stone. Writing on metal and stone ensures that words will last for forever. Um, but obviously by the Ming, something pretty profound has changed. If writers are writing on these, you know, serially produced, mass produced objects that are designed to be consumed and designed to be used up. Um, and so we raised questions around how these Mingqing authors were thinking about durability more generally. What did they see? Um, what did they? You know, how did they define the act of um, ensuring textual survival? What constitutes textual survival at this time? Um, and how does that relate to kind of developments in print culture, in the kind of the commercial economy, in all of these different fields? So. Yeah, so the ink stick was, was was really interesting from that perspective. And I guess finally, there's also this kind of social dimension to it where, um, you know, the ink stick is produced by a merchant artisan. It's not this, you know, beautiful rock that's just been found in a garden. It's this kind of mass produced commodity. And at this time, you know, the maker, the kind of the artisan who's responsible for the object becomes increasingly influential in the design and the packaging and the production of these of these commodities and so we start to see kind of a social negotiation going on there too between sort of the literati poet or the literati author who you know feels that by making this act of inscription they're defining the meaning of this cultural you know this cultural artifact And then the merchants, the entrepreneurs, the artisans who are responsible for actually creating it, who are actually the ones, you know, innovating with the kind of the material design. So, you know, you've used this word interface a bit. And I I think that ink stick is really kind of um, an interesting interface between the sort of the culture of literary art and calligraphy, and then this kind of artisanal merchant culture of entrepreneurship and uh, mass production.
1: Thank you, Tom. Uh, this is fascinating. Um, do you mind if we return to your second point, uh, just to dwell on this a little bit, because it's really fascinating. Um, so the question or the idea of durability or the ways in which writers in this period were actually questioning the normative forms of monuments uh, monument making, right?
0: I think you're right. I mean, this is one of the kind of the key questions that I begin with in the book, which is why writers write inscriptions at a time when it's no longer a way of ensuring permanence or durability. So they're not writing on stone or bronze, because they have faith that these materials will ensure the longevity of their words. They're working with Um, in many of the cases I'm examining, they're working with objects associated with the studio, with daily life, with um, the kind of the ordinary everyday labor of writing. So brush rests, you know, racks for hanging, um, you know, different types of writing implements, pots, water dippers, inkstones, cases for seals. So these are very sort of, um, you know, basic objects associated with the act of literary creation in general. Um, and so that was kind of one of the key issues I wanted to begin with, which is, you know, why people create inscriptions or write inscriptions when they're no longer doing it just to affirm the longevity of their words on this particular medium. So they're kind of treating the issue of durability as, um, as a question. What makes something durable? Is the durability of an object determined purely by its materiality or is it determined by other things such as the, you know, the emotional attachments and connections that it can create and sustain or its capacity to be um, recreated, mass produced or um, the ability of these writers and artists to adapt the inscription in different media, to take the inscription and to transform it through rubbings or through reproductions or through this process of material transfer to give it a new type of life. And so throughout the book, I kind of explore how writers at this time gradually approached inscription, not so much as a way of thinking about permanence, but as a way of dwelling on the possibilities of refabrication and creativity. So it became more about the ways in which these writers felt that they could use an inscription to sort of tinker with their surroundings or to sort of reimagine the significance of these objects that they're surrounded with um, or to sort of use the kind of the materials of daily life to, to reimagine the kind of the conditions of their own material existence. So it wasn't so much about, yeah, this kind of interest in monumentality as it's traditionally conceptualized, um, but more as a sort of an open question I mean some of these writers still believe that because they're so famous if they put their words on a certain thing that it will survive just because of who they are um but I think the most interesting examples at this time kind of treat that issue of durability as a theme um and I you know I I think again we can come back to a writer like Zhang Dai who again is sort of this the focus of chapter one and is you know one of the kind of the key inspirations in this project and he you know a lot of the things he writes on are damaged broken ruined <laughs> they're kind of you know the property of someone who's already died or they're things that are so miniature and small that they're so fragile they can just be easily forgotten about yeah thank you i think there's also um you know w- Probably in most literary traditions, inscriptions are associated with memory, with the idea of collective memory, with the idea of sort of ensuring the commemoration of the deceased. Um, But in China, there's also this this tendency to think about the kind of the admonition of an inscription. So to see the inscription as also warning or admonishing or kind of instructing its human handler. And this, this idea can be dated back to sort of, you know, the earliest examples of these, of these inscriptions on objects, Um, and certainly in kind of literary thought in the Han Dynasty, the way Ming is conceptualized is often in terms of, especially Ming on objects, which is really my focus, so I'm not so much dealing with, you know, steles or epitaphs, but really, you know, inscriptions on portable objects, on kind of household objects. These inscriptions are often also associated with this idea of kind of admonition and warning and that can sound really dry and quite moralistic and boring but actually I think it creates really interesting possibilities for thinking about um, identity and the voice of the writer and um, the possibilities of playfulness within this form so a lot of admonitory inscriptions play with personification they they allow the object sometimes Times to assume the voice of an eye. So some of these inscriptions that Zhang Dai writes during the Ming Qing transition, they're not just supposed to be read as him talking to these things and him sort of saying, oh, you know, I've, I've, I really miss this deceased relative. But there are actually ways of sort of imagining the object taking on a voice and assuming a voice and even assuming the position of an eye and sort of reprimanding or commenting upon maybe the transgressions or the failures of his family. Um, And so there's something quite serious about that, but there's also something quite playful about that, because you're sort of dislocating the, you know, the position of the human author, or you're imagining the possibility that they can assume different roles, take on different roles, and maybe pretend to be a rock, or pretend to be a hairpin, or pretend to be, you know, one of these other kind of minor objects. Um, So it opens up this possibility, yeah, for thinking about, you know, other types of perspectives in Chinese literature, and obviously, Ming isn't the only genre that does this. I mean, we find that kind of ventriloquism and role playing in many other genres. But I think Ming does become sort of a central way in which writers imagine, um, you know, the idea of personification, but also this, you know, this issue of prosopopeia—the idea that a thing can can speak, the idea that a thing can have a voice. Um, And so many of the literary examples that I'm dealing with play with that. You know, they play with the idea that an object can, you know, the the text can be read from the perspective of a human, but it could also potentially be read as the thing kind of commenting on its human owner. Um, And so that's something I wanted to draw out, that this isn't just about um, memory and commemoration and the ethics of transmission, but it's also about sort of relationship between the human and the kind of the non-human and the ways in which the non-human can um, be used as a device for critiquing the narcissism of the human and sort of thinking about the kind of the, the self-centeredness of the male literatus and maybe undermining that in some way.
1: Mm, this is really fun. Um, and it actually tears down a little bit the anthropocentricism uh, when we deal with object, right? Right. Um, and I, I do see that on the other hand, um, by basically looking, zooming in at this uh admonition angle of like how a things could actually talk to its user or its owner, uh, not just this particular owner, but potentially the owners that would come into its possession later on, right? So is this such cross-generational? or this uh, interaction across time between objects and different uh, people that it comes into interaction with. So it actually shifts the uh, perspective from thinking about inscription as a, a form for posterity to thinking about inscription as a form of interaction that, or as a form of enabling interaction between object and human. So I find that uh, also quite fascinating.
0: Yeah, I think there's also, I mean, I should probably also mention that a lot of the examples I'm dealing with were written by authors who lived through the Ming Qing transition. And so this kind of <laughs> opens up the issue of temporality in an interesting way. So a lot, of, you know, they're not these, these figures who are necessarily thinking about how they want their reputation or their memory preserved. A lot of them feel intense guilt or shame at not having committed suicide with the fall of the Ming. Um, so they feel this kind of almost this inadequacy, this sense of um, a loss of humanity that leads them to identify in quite serious ways with the properties of objects. But they also, um, you know, many of them are living at a time where they're kind of positioned between two temporal frameworks. So they grew up under this one way of thinking about time, the Ming Dynasty, and now they're living in this new way of thinking about time, the Qing Dynasty, but they feel like that Ming framework hasn't quite come to an end. Um, so some of them participate, for instance, in loyalist uh, in loyalist militias, they fight against the Qing forces. Um, one of the authors I begin the book with, Wang Fuzhi, when, you know, he's writing these inscriptions on his inkstone and his brush, which seem very sort of trivial things to be doing, he's really reflecting on his own agency, his own sort of loss of agency, living between these two kind of din- din- dynasties in a way, you know, that the Ming resistance is still out there somewhere waiting to try and usurp the the mandate of heaven, but he's kind of losing Faith that it will ever be able to do that, but he doesn't see Qing time and the Qing state as legitimate. Um, And so this is kind of well known. I mean, I feel like historians and uh, cultural historians, especially, have written a lot about this, but I think it raises particularly important questions in thinking about inscription, because we think, as you said, you know, inscription is a way of really trying to communicate with posterity, it's a way of trying to monumentalize human virtue and human achievement. Um, And so In a moment where, you know, these writers feel really unhappy with with their own achievements, they feel really sort of depressed about their own achievements, and some of them don't even want to be commemorated, they don't want to be, you know, they don't want their name to be transmitted, they would rather just sort of pretend to be dead, Um, it raises interesting questions for why they choose to identify with objects or speak as objects or impersonate objects. So it can be quite a playful thing like Wang Fuzhi, he refers to himself constantly as a recalcitrant rock um, and pretends to speak as a hairpin, he pretends to speak as a comb. You know, he takes these kind of minor objects and uses them as a way of ventriloquizing other types of emotions. It can be quite playful, but it's also very serious, I think, for him that he's trying to come to terms with an identity that um, is sort of trapped between different ways of making sense of the world. And you know, in many ways he does see himself as having already kind of died. So this question of animacy and inanimacy becomes very charged. It's not just like this, you know, fully human literatus being friends with this kind of fully inanimate object. There's a real sense that, you know, they see in the inanimate world ways of thinking about their own loss of agency. And they find within things a way of communicating messages that maybe they couldn't communicate um, talking as sort of a human so i think that it, you know it's a very complicated issue but I, I do feel like that particular historical moment really opens up the possibilities for thinking about the connections between words and things that it's not just this straightforward act of monumentalizing the past or you know ensuring future transmission to one's descendants but the whole question of who you're speaking to and who you're speaking as becomes fraught with kind of deeper political meaning.
1: Yeah, and particularly in this kind of uh, really traumatic historical period that a lot of the writers that you feature in the book were going through, the it, it really becomes a question, right? Is it still possible to be speaking to anyone and get your message across? And remember, as you intended. Um, so this very idea of uh, communication, connection, uh, penetration of uh, of mind uh, becomes really um, the question that people grapple with, and and not the assumption that people work with. Um, so I really appreciate that you brought uh, you brought up this I uh, sort of larger context, uh, but also larger forces of the Ming Qing transition. So readers who, who are interested in uh, the cultural history and also the history of Ming Qing transition would not be disappointed because even though the book on the surface, as you said, really deals with this um quote unquote, uh, humble, everyday minor objects. But it does actually use these objects as uh, sort of a very effective nod to engage this almost unspeakable and uh, very hard to sort of express what this period is about, right? What this temporality uh, is about and how an individual could position himself or herself in this really traumatic transition, so um, thank you for that. And so I think that also give me a very uh, a great chance to just also slightly switch gear to maybe grapple with a, a little bit about um, the challenges of your approach. Uh, and obviously, this approach has been very promising, and we have seen the uh, fascinating discovery that uh, you basically communicate in the book so beautifully. And um, you mentioned in Zhang Dai's case, for example, that uh, some of the writings are about objects that are already lost uh or broken especially in your epilogues uh you entitle your epilogues with broken stones so the sense of loss and the sense of uh destruction is very much prevailing in uh this period in the objects but also in the book so be um i would guess that one of the difficulty or challenge might be actually locating these uh, sources or these objects themselves, right? But um, I wonder what are the sort of other uh, kinds of challenges, or maybe if you want, the rewards of uh, using inscribed objects and particularly using interfaces, sort of trying to work at the interface between textual culture and material culture?
0: Um, Thank you. Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And um really beautifully framed I, f- I feel that is definitely one of the kind of the central challenges I faced you know when I first thought about this project I thought okay so I can just find these objects that have these interesting literary inscriptions on them and then do this kind of analysis that brings together literary literary close reading with visual and material kind of scholarship but but actually you know as you as you kind of suggested many of the most interesting literary inscriptions only survive in um in manuscripts or in printed books so many of the objects that sort of the most interesting kind of literary figures composed and many of them might have been in, inscribed but whether or not those objects survive is 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 often kind of is is often hard to sort of define and discern Um, so on the one hand the literary inscriptions tend to be fairly kind of dematerialized and then on the other hand when you do look at the the you know the vast number of surviving inscriptions on objects that do survive from the Ming and Qing period they tend to be not that interesting from a literary perspective they tend to be very interesting in terms of their calligraphy or in terms of carving technique or in terms of the kind of the design and format of The text, but in terms of their content as poems or as works of prose, they tend to be, you know, fairly short, compressed, and quite trite. And so the challenge for me was not to try and sort of impose a method of reading, but to try and just follow where the evidence led me. Um, And I do feel, you know, I'm really a literary historian. That's really my training. Um, And I feel there is still value in a kind of a literary approach to these. Materials. I feel, you know, you could write a book about inscription as a historian of calligraphy, as an art historian, as a historian of material culture, but I do feel literary scholars still have something to add to this, because these writers, when they composed these inscriptions, were still thinking of this act as a means of kind of self-expression through words and through language. But I wanted to sort of unpack the idea of inscription by just basically bringing together the diversity of materials that it survive and not trying to sort of force things into some sort of cookie cutter or, you know, make cuts or, or, or choices, depending on, you know, whether things are carved or not carved. Um, and I think there's, there's something, you know, to really understand how, um, how artists, how writers in the ming period conceptualized Ming, we have to take seriously, you know, the inscriptions that they wrote for tea leaves, the inscriptions that they wrote for objects they encountered in their dreams on the one hand, and also these very sort of terse moralizing admonitions that they carved on extant inkstones. on the other. I feel like bringing those things together is what matters rather than maybe just trying to find single objects that are both valuable as literary texts and as material sources to think about how to create a dialogue between literary materials and visual and um, surviving sort of antiques through kind of a method of of comparison through contrast um, and just trying to sort of lend texture to the ways these writers imagined and thought about me not trying to say okay I can only focus on inscriptions that are actually carved or I can only focus on inscriptions that are interesting as poems but to sort of try and bring the different types of materials together and to form some sort of dialogue between them. And you know, I should say a lot of a lot of the inscriptions survive not necessarily on objects or in books, but as rubbings as well. So the, the issue of the rubbing becomes quite important as a medium that communicates and preserves inscriptions. Um, so there's really sort of three sets of materials, um, inscriptions that survive in books, for which an object doesn't survive. Inscriptions that survive on objects, where the object does survive, and then also inscriptions that survive in rubbings, where maybe the object has also disappeared. But I think when you bring these three things together, you can really begin to get a sense of how writers and artists conceptualized Ming and why they felt it was important and what they saw in this act. But there are, you know, there are cases where you can find an inkstone inscription where the writer is also incredibly playful and sophisticated and is using literary illusion in a really generative way. So there are cases in the book where these these frameworks coincide. Um, but part of my but yeah, part of the challenge of this project was just taking a step back and following the evidence where it led rather than trying to sort of, you know, make decisions before having done that archival work.
1: Thank you for sharing with us and with all the audience about, um, not just about the book, but also what is not in the book, <laughs> meaning all the stories that that uh, sort of what all the unexpected uh, kind of discovery or frustrations or challenges that you encounter. But I do think that, um not avoiding these challenges or imposing this self uh, sort of self-imposed uh restrictions but rather uh being very open to sort of take these uh landscape of materials a lot of them are quite messy right as you mentioned um most of them don't really survive on real objects and some of them survive in different forms uh, for example in robbing in a catalog of wrappings which you talked about in detail in one of the chapters which is fascinating So I really appreciate the openness uh, that uh, you 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 have when you deal with these sort of messy uh, primary sources materials. Um, and for me it does the kind of the fruit of this approach uh, is also quite substantial uh, and, and the book, does have the potential to speak to a lot of the uh, interesting questions in literary history, right? For example, the issues of canonization. What do we as literary scholars uh, think about when we sort of, com- when we're confronted with texts that are not so much canonized? Uh, so all these texts are prescribed or these texts are exist on the everyday objects. So they They exist in our everyday life, but they don't uh, present themselves as a canonical piece of literature to be memorized. Um, And also, how do we deal with uh, some of the hybrid genres, for example, the genre of rubbing, uh, the genre of new catalogs, and so on and so forth. So so thank you for that. Um, Now uh, I do have one more question about the general outlook and general theoretical. Uh, approach of the book uh, before we move on to specific chapters um so your book is apart from the exciting first hand uh, objects and materials it is also filled with nuanced analysis of dense literary text and graphic designs in which you also engage with thinkers like uh chatier patiss uh, Der- derrida etc um so can you explain a little bit what roles these writers and thinkers uh, and their writings play in your thinking about uh Ming phenomena, right? Pre-modern Chinese phenomena.
0: Yeah, thank you. Um it's a difficult question because um, you know, I definitely don't want to give the impression that I'm just sort of using you know, Western kind of theoretical frameworks to try and make sense of this kind of early Chinese, early modern Chinese phenomena. No, but there's I think... no such impression at all. <laughs> <laughs> I, do think, I think, again, it comes back to sort of creating a dialogue. And um, I think as a scholar, it's also important to kind of acknowledge your, your, your own position and your own kind of intellectual trajectory. So, you know, I'm not a Ming scholar. I'm not someone from this kind of early modern Chinese culture of of inscription making. So my interest in the topic, my interest in this kind of phenomenon is is kind of shaped and informed by things that I've read through graduate school um, as an assistant professor that have been written about, you know, examples and cases from other parts of the world or from other moments in time. Um, And I think that has really informed my kind of my interest in this topic of inscription, this kind of conceptual problem of inscription, which, you know, scholars have written about in many other contexts. And so I wanted to sort of acknowledge that. I didn't just want to pretend that, you know, I was coming to it and just looking at this, you know, evidence that I found in a museum or in a library and trying to say something, um, you know, authentic about it in this very sort of crudely historicist manner where you can only make claims that are directly supported by particularities of these texts. I wanted to sort of acknowledge the fact that there had been certain writers, certain thinkers who would help me frame some of these problems um, and to sort of weave their, their perspectives into my study in an interesting way. Um, and to try and also, you know, open up this question um, you know, to to scholars who are interested in comparison and to comparative literature. Like, I'm not, it, I don't think it's a comparative book in that I'm saying, oh, you know, here is a phenomena in early modern China and this is how it manifested itself in early modern England or early modern Spain. But there are connections and there are possibilities for comparison and connection. And I wanted to sort of gesture to that without sort of overwhelming the reader. So, yeah, part of it was just sort of acknowledging my own intellectual trajectory and sort of facing up to... The influences that have sort of informed some of my own interest in in literature and materiality but also opening up the book potentially to other communities and other other groups of readers who maybe don't come from a sinology a sinological background or a sinological perspective um, but yeah I definitely don't think of it as you know using kind of a theoretical tool to unpack this kind of of early modern Chinese case, I really wanted to see it more as sustaining some sort of dialogue between the two, where the kind of the assumptions of, um, you know, theorists who've, who've written a lot about literature and materiality, maybe they they allow us to frame certain problems in an interesting way, but maybe the sources that I'm dealing with also kind of challenge those frameworks and maybe unsettle those frameworks in other ways. So to see it as a kind of a two way thing.
1: Yeah, I, I as a reader I I do want to reassure you that I do get the sense of more of a sense of conversation that uh in terms of I mean uh the role that these thinkers and writers are playing in your book is more like a conversation partner that you're thinking through these ideas, maybe alongside what they presented in their case studies, but not really um sort of, uh, here's the theory, and here's my data, now it works, or it doesn't work, so it doesn't really work that way, and I do want to highlight for our readers as well, that uh, the the really fascinating and, and rewarding thing about reading this book is is the abundant, uh, and really the wealth of materials, and, and interesting stories, and it really, really situates one, in the historical historical period, but also in the particular ways in which you, the writer of the book, uh, sort of are thinking through or reminiscing on these peculiar acts of writing, uh and sort of leading our attention or calling our attention to okay, looking at the practice of ink making or seal carving, uh, and so on and so forth. So um yes so thank you very much for uh answering all these uh fascinating sort of highlighting all these fascinating uh facets of the book for us so um with the remainder of the time i i do want to maybe take the readers through the uh fascinating and really unique chapters that make up uh the book right uh so Um, Starting with chapter one, in which you discuss the concept of remnant things, uh, which, uh, if you may, (laughs) is leftover things, right? (laughs) So could you explain the significance of this idea and uh, its connection to Ming inscription? So what exactly are these remnant things and why do you want to describe them as remnant? Uh, So sort of unpacking this particular term for uh, readers who may not be familiar with Ming Qing transition and late Ming literature.
0: Yeah, thank you, Hui Jin. I think, yeah, the first chapter really tries to introduce kind of the central themes for all the other chapters. So I, many of the developments that happen in chapter two, three, four, and the epilogue can be traced back to that initial chapter. So it uses this writer that we've already mentioned, Zhang Dai, um, who authored, you know, a very large number of inscriptions on um, his family possessions, but also on the possessions of friends and his own possessions. Um, and so the remnant, the idea of the remnant thing basically is referring to um, objects that were created or produced or inscribed in the Ming Dynasty, but then are either lost and rediscovered in the early Qing or are somehow um given new value or new meaning in the early Qing as symbols of a time that is now gone or a time that is now past, and so it became an interesting point to begin the book because it you know it raises many of these questions that we've already discussed about what does it mean to write an inscription when um, your own preconceptions about monumentality about permanence about memory are somehow problematized because you're living in this period where you feel connected to a time that's gone and you don't feel at one with the time in which you uh, are writing. So, yeah, the act of being in the Qing and writing on a Ming thing can seem, you know, pretty, pretty niche. But I think it raises a lot of the kind of the key questions and concerns in the book, which is, why does inscription become interesting or important at this moment when frameworks for thinking about durability have been challenged or unsettled and there's this kind of trauma in the background that these writers are trying to deal with. But in my reading of Zhang Dai, I deal with his approach to to branding, to um, the rise of kind of commercial um, practices of product labeling. I deal with his kind of relationship to carvers, to the, these kind of entrepreneurial merchant carvers who start to make money by going around China and carving their signatures onto different things. So I, I think like a lot of the other developments that I deal with can kind of already, they, they're already there in that initial chapter. And then the chapter ends with an analysis of kind of broken objects or objects that he's writing on that have been damaged or fragmented or or ruined. And that really sort of sets up, again, this kind of argument that inscription becomes more a strategy of refabrication, of recreation, of transformation, than it does this act of like insisting on fixity and closure and permanence. So I think he dramatizes some of the kind of the key arguments of the book.
1: Yeah, this is beautiful. And uh, I find it... Really interesting that, I mean, earlier you do mention this, uh, the point about this book being uh, focused on portable objects. And uh, from the perspective of the human agents, human actors in this book, uh, they're also moving quite a lot, right? Itinerant carvers and ink makers and artisans and so on and so forth. So readers who are interested in uh, sort of seeing Ming and seeing Zhang Dai in particular from a different uh, light would uh, definitely want to check out this chapter, so um, in the next chapter, uh, and you're right that the first chapter do lay out the sort of logistics for what is coming in the later chapters. And uh, chapter two, one of my favorite chapter, um, focuses on the practice of writing with a knife. And in particular, this uh, category of, well, maybe a few individuals who you term as uh, sort of almost a knight errant kind of figure. But uh, they're really knife errands, <laughs> sort of wielding the knife uh, as if they're wielding kind of a weapons of justice. Um, so in uh, this chapter, you focus on seals and seals carving. So I wonder if you want to maybe say a bit more about what seals are and, and what is their role and their practical use in this culture and in this period in China? Um, And maybe more importantly, a few words about how would sort of looking at this particular categories of agents um, tell us something new or something that we didn't know before about Chinese literature?
0: Um, Thank you. Yeah. So I I kind of wanted because I feel like Zhang Dai, he can be very sort of solipsistic and kind of introspective and very mournful and so by the second chapter i wanted right i wanted readers to sort of get a sense that this isn't a book that's just about these sort of sad old men you know lamenting the loss of their youth <laughs> but there's yes, something it's full of actions there's a lot of vibrant kind of creativity that yeah. comes with that and so yeah so um it's really about um the the resurgence of interest in writing with a knife or calligraphic carving in the late ming and in the early ching And I deal with seal carving really only as one of the primary media through which um, this question of calligraphic carving or writing with a knife was was thought about. Um, So seals are basically these kind of small portable devices um, that you uh, can carve either a name or sort of an auspicious phrase or even kind of resonant lines of poetry on. Um, And they become kind of markers of personal or institutional identity. Um, but in the Ming in the Late Ming dynasty, we suddenly see this um this real boom in um this kind of new resurgence of interest in the aesthetics and in the kind of the technical act of seal carving. Um so traditionally, a seal would have been formed through kind of collaboration between a calligrapher and a carver, right? So a calligrapher would write a message or a, or draft. The calligraphy of a seal impression, and then they would give it to a jade carver, a bronze engraver, maybe a carver of ivory to to render it in a durable medium, and then to turn it into a steel uh, a seal. But in the in the late Ming, we suddenly see this this kind of new development where um, carvers begin to um, use softer stones to kind of um, discover these comparatively pliant or subtle or supple substrates. Um, And then they can kind of use these media as a way of drafting their own calligraphy and carving with a knife at the same time. So it becomes a way of fusing brushwork and knife work. Um, And this becomes kind of the precondition for the kind of the culture of inscription that I'm dealing with. So it's only really because we have these developments in seal carving that we then have you know, writers writing their own words on inkstones, or writing on, you know, bamboo artifacts, or other types of hardwood. So seal carving becomes this kind of generative field that um, inspires and kind of shapes the art of inscription on a wide range of surfaces. Um, but again, you know, I'm I'm not so much a historian of calligraphy or a historian of material culture as a literary historian, so. That chapter is dealing with this phenomenon, but it's also dealing with why so many writers at this time discussed this phenomenon. So, we have so many accounts of like these carvers who are famous for drinking and fighting and going off to the Great Wall and fighting, you know, Mongolians and then going and killing pirates. And there's this real sort of fascination with these figures. And so, you know, whilst I'm, you know, using, seals and looking at kind of material practices of carving and trying to sort of introduce readers to some of the kind of technical developments that we see in carving at this time, my interest is still really on this kind of literary phenomenon of writers and poets and essayists spending so much time kind of evaluating the character of of a carver or what they were intending to do when they made this carving or trying to sort of police the act of carving. Um, so a lot of the early kind of seal carvers were from you know, merchant backgrounds or artisanal backgrounds. They weren't from sort of the literati class. Um, so commentators felt a need to sort of justify the engagement of scholars with this art form. What makes a scholar seal different from an artisan seal or from a merchant seal? Um, how can we define the sort of the authenticity of carving as a medium of literati expression so you know I'm sort of dealing both with the materiality of these things but also with the kind of the cultural imagination of them
1: that's fascinating. And uh, I mean, the really exciting interfaces between sort of what you just mentioned, branding, marketing, and so on and so forth, uh, actually leads us into the next chapter as well. Because there you also explore, I mean, you explore the role of uh, the ink maker, right? which I think you discuss a little bit about in uh, when we discuss the introduction earlier on. Um, where you highlight the production design and branding of Instic as extensive collaborations between poets, calligraphers, seal covers, painters and woodblock engravers. So I wonder if you can discuss uh, specific examples of how these marks uh, on the instincts illuminate the relationship between, say, writers and uh, craftsmen.
0: Yeah, thank you. So it's a it's, a, it's a really fascinating question. So basically, I, I kind of already mentioned this that in the the late Ming we see this proliferation of um, these kind of encyclopedias of ink cake designs. So we have these famous ink makers who are again merchant artisans, um, and they become sort of notorious as sort of. Cultural celebrities. So we have all these scandals of them like throwing young boys into snake pits to refine kind of the glue recipe for their ink or having affairs with each other's concubines and stuff. So they become kind of these cultural celebrities, these sort of nouveau riche merchants. But at the same time, they design and they publish these encyclopedic catalogs of ink cake designs where they take. Calligraphy, um, ancient inscriptions, seal designs, paintings from a really broad range of visual and material sources, and they reuse them as surface designs for ink cakes. Um, and these catalogs, you know, they've been they've been very widely studied by art historians and by you know historians of calligraphy. But I was particularly interested in why so many of the leading poets and prose stylists started to compose inscriptions for these designs. So many of these catalogs have, you know, almost hundreds of inscriptions composed by um, really sort of leading intellectuals and leading poets of the period who are trying to sort of compete to promote a particular brand of ink or a particular line of commercial ink. Um, And so we see this kind of interesting literary phenomenon where some of the most established literary figures of the period are engaging in this pretty superfluous practice of writing on ink cakes. Um, But it raises interesting questions about celebrity, about the nature of fame um, and also about sort of the relationship between the scholar and the artisan, because these projects are both intended to promote these kind of merchant artisans, but they're also a platform for literary figures to kind of, to demonstrate their authority and to try and control the meaning of this object that is really the kind of lifeblood of literati culture um so the ink cake itself becomes an interesting interface where it can receive and transform and adapt different types of gra- graphic art whether it's a seal impression whether it's a poem whether it's an inscription um and i really feel like a lot of these designs are not they're often interpreted as kind of pictures of ink cakes um and i kind of my analysis is basically trying to sort of shift away from that idea to think of them as basically using the ink cake as a platform for thinking about the relationship between these different forms of graphic art so it's not like these these publishers these um ink makers and these poets are sort of sitting around and they're drawing images of all of these extant ink cakes but rather they're like coming up with these designs as a way of trying to to sort of Think about the connections between calligraphy, craft, literature, and epigraphy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and um, this is this is really interesting, and and I also do want to highlight for the audience how, uh, and I, I wonder if if this is accurately sort of describing uh, part of the book because I I do feel like chapter two and chapter three, which are me are interesting conceptual pair as well because i mean in chapter two you talk about seal covers chapter three you deal with ink maker but also shopkeeper and uh, a variety of different actors who whose sort of roles are primarily we think of them as um I guess, agents in the market, right? So the market really becomes uh, sort of a prominent force. However, in the background, the force is you do sort of engage with that phenomena of merchandising and uh, branding, for example. So I do want to highlight this aspect. uh, And one, uh, one of the things that I think are quite important point that you're making in the book, which is how, uh, carving, the act of carving and mark making and brand making, on the one hand, it is, uh, it is of course, very sort of the markers of commercial life. But then on the other hand, in the literature of the Ming Qing period, these acts become uh, an interesting tactic, right, for these agents to negotiate in uh, urban life, in urban marketplace. And I, when I was reading it, I do feel like um, there's a potential sort of conversation between what you were talking about and what maybe Desa was talking about in the practice of everyday life and so on and so forth. Um, so this is really uh, fascinating and, and really interesting stuff uh, that the book covers. So please read the book. <laughs> um, and it well let's let's perhaps dive into the next chapter and the epilog um so chapter 4 um i think it's it's slightly different the way it approach and also the selection of material differs in nature with the previous two chapters so in chapter 4 you discuss primarily what you call uh, antiquarian poetry so um can you elaborate on the term antiquarian or antiquarianism in the context of your book, and maybe give us a typical example of that. And what does this form of writing uh, have to do with uh, the idea of inscription?
0: Yeah, thank you. So yeah, I think the fourth chapter kind of comes back to some of the questions I dealt with with Zhang Dai. It's really about sort of the response of uh, Chinese writers to um, objects that survived the Ming Qing transition. Um, And so one of the things we see in the Qing dynasty, and this is kind of, you know, has been widely studied, is this resurgence of interest in the study of ancient inscriptions. So this idea that beginning in the early Qing, but reaching sort of a high point in the Qianlong period, um, antiquarian scholars become increasingly interested in studying ancient inscriptions as a source of historical evidence for correcting gaps or flaws in um, received versions of texts or for studying the kind of evolution and the development of Chinese writing. Um, So a lot of the emphasis is always on how these antiquarians kind of studied inscriptions or how they kind of understood inscriptions as a form of historical knowledge. Um, And I wanted to sort of show um, how they continued to think about inscription as a creative act. So how they, many of these figures who were involved in you know, studying ancient steles and bronze vessels, we're also still carving inscriptions on inkstones, on desktop objects, on small portable things, and that their inscriptions on these surfaces actually show a great deal of creativity and a great deal of sort of imagination, um, in a way that actually sort of opens up the way we think about the kind of the intellectual culture of the period. So there's this tendency to think about these antiquarians as being very serious, very austere, very pedantic, very kind of focused on facts and evidence, but when we actually look at the inscriptions that they produced, the creative inscriptions that they themselves made on new objects, we see a lot of kind of irony, playfulness, role-playing, creativity, um, and I wanted to sort of bring that out. So when I'm talking about antiquarian poetry, I'm thinking a little bit about why you know about how important the kind of the poetic, the literary imagination was within Qing antiquarian culture. So, trying to move away from this idea of Qing antiquarian culture as very conservative, as very, um, you know, as very pedantic, and to think about it actually as a field of real innovation and creativity in art making, and particularly in forms of literary expression. So we often think of the Chenlong period as like the high point in the study of epigraphy, but maybe the low point in the history of poetry or history of Chinese literature. But actually, I think when you read a lot of these antiquarians from a literary perspective, when you look at their poetry, when you look at their, their literary inscriptions, you see maybe a different side to their engagement with materiality and to their engagement with things. Um, so that's kind of what I was trying to draw out. And it, you know, one of the objects I deal with in that chapter is this rhinoceros horn cup, this Ming rhinoceros horn cup that survives the Ming Qing transition, and it gets rediscovered and recreated in different media in in the Qing, Qing dynasty by some of the leading antiquarians of the period. They write poems about it. They use this object as a way of kind of reflecting on the trauma of the dynastic transition. But I was. You know, I was also kind of a little bit interested in this question of why they become so fixated on this seemingly, you know, a very kind of late Ming object. And rhinoceros horn cup is this exotic import. It's a thing that it's not an ancient bronze. It's not this kind of prestigious literati vessel. It's this um, almost kind of a trinket, but through its inscription and through its recreation in rubbings and in stone carvings and in poetry, it becomes this kind of improvisatory monument to um, the kind of these collectives of antiquarian poets and their relationship to the Ming Qing transition. So yeah, I think that's kind of what the chapter is trying to do. It uses antiquarian poetry as a way of trying to, to try and think about the importance of the literary imagination and the poetic imagination in the Qing and in the Hai Qing particularly, but also to sort of see the legacy of this kind of late Ming culture of seal carving, of, creative literary inscription and how that continues to inform and influence um, the art of making inscriptions even into the Qing.
1: Thank you, and that takes us uh, perfectly to the last chapter slash the epilogue of the book, which is entitled Broken Stones. Um, I find that uh, an interesting sort of image to conclude a book. Um, So I wonder if you wanted to talk about how sort of the image and the object of broken stone and this idea of brokenness serve as a fitting conclusion to uh, this book's exploration of inscribed objects, mark making, and uh, thinking about the dynastic transition and thinking about durability and ephemerality uh, and the other themes that the book is obviously sort of trying to grapple with.
0: Thank you. Yeah, so I think that the the, the epilogue is really trying to bring all the other chapters together. Um, so even at the end of the Zhang Dai chapter, chapter one, I deal with his act of writing on broken or damaged inkstones and his act of kind of imagining his own experience during the Ming Qing transition through identifying with broken objects or with broken forms. Um, But by the Qing dynasty, we actually see, you know, collectors and antiquarians um, create new inscriptions on fractured, ruined, ruined segments of stele, on um, discarded pillars, on discarded roof tiles. Um, So there's this interest among kind of early Qing and even high Qing antiquarians in, again, what I've been calling this kind of act of refabrication. So seeing inscription... As a form of almost a type of craft that can be used to reimagine the value and the meaning and the significance of broken or discarded or thrown away things. Um, And so the image of the broken stone kind of captures one of the key arguments of the book that is, you know, that inscription becomes increasingly a means of trying to find value in that which seems useless and valueless and discarded and broken and and useless. Um, and then using inscription as a way of trying to sort of reimagine those things rather than this act of, you know, chauvinistic, um, assertive, affirmative kind of mark making that is there to sort of ensure the permanence of one's name for all time. It becomes this act of almost like tinkering. And so the key, the key figure in the final chapter is the figure Gao Han. Who's very famous as a as a kind of a painter and as a calligrapher from, from that from the kind of um you know the Kangxi end of the Kangxi era into sort of the Chenlong era. Um and he you know he suffered um, from poverty. He was imprisoned briefly as the result of a of a kind of a setup. Um he you know he suffered. Paralysis um, in his arm, and so he could only write with his left arm. so he he really um, experienced an enormous amount of kind of suffering and precarity. Um, and we see him become particularly drawn to inscribing fragments, broken things, humble, forgotten things. And using that act of writing on these things as a way of kind of dealing with his own agency, dealing with his own body, his own kind of status in this moment of real uncertainty. Um, and so he's not someone who you know lived through the Ming Qing transition or has this kind of real interest in the commemoration of the Ming Qing transition. But he still uses a lot of those ideas, a lot of those tropes um, to think about his own kind of everyday, humble, um, you know, day to day life. Um, he also, you know, his practice really unites everything that I've been dealing with in the book. So just like Zhang Dai, he has this interest in kind of almost an ironic view of durability um, an attentiveness to the broken and to the damaged. Just like the seal carvers in chapter two, Gao Feng Han is a very famous seal carver. He kind of identified with a lot of those late Ming seal carvers. Um, he uses a lot of ink cake designs as designs for inkstones. So he kind of takes designs from ink cakes and uses them as samples for creating new inkstones and new inkstone inscriptions. And then, like the antiquarian poets, he's also interested in the kind of the creativity and the, the possibilities that might arise from antiquarian scholarship, not just. As a way of understanding the history of Chinese writing, but as a ma- as a mode of sort of art making, as a mode of sort of self expression, so he he kind of becomes a figure that kind of really ties all the chapters together, um, and he, he himself really identifies with this image of the broken stone. So yeah,
1: sounds uh, really intriguing. I, I and I really like the case study of Gal Han.
0: and
1: in a way, his story really speak to um, sort of the brokenness of things, but also the brokenness of the forms of life the modes of being in such a uh, unprecedented time at least i mean in the experience of people who live through it or live through memories of it um so living in precarity um it's i think it's what the epilog really brings out beautifully um and i also think in your response just now um, you touch upon a few really interesting ideas that Um, It sounds to me, uh, and I would like to phrase it as the ways in which uh, the book and your particular approach would actually either sort of complicate or maybe even challenge the traditional notions of literary studies and material culture, such as authorship and how we think about literary production how we think about these objects uh, traditionally, as you uh, discussed a little bit in the beginning also, that people have been thinking about these objects in terms of connoisseurship, right? Fine arts, issues of taste and conspicuous consumption and so on and so forth. So I wonder um, by way of sort of uh, concluding our journey through the chapters of the book, can you uh, illustrate or elaborate a little bit on the implications be it theoretical or be it specific sort of implications of the book or the bigger arguments or gestures that you are making through writing the book.
0: Thank you. Yeah, I think one of the you know one of the key developments that the book really examines is um, you know this tendency to towards writing inscriptions and also making inscriptions as being sort of one act. Right. So I begin with someone like Zhang Dai, who, you know, he's a wonderful writer, he's a wonderful kind of poet, prose stylist, um, but we don't really have much evidence that he was able to carve his own inscriptions, that he was able to sort of make his own inscriptions. He sort of depended upon collaboration or sort of hiring a kind of a professional artisan. Um, but then through chapter two, through chapter three, through chapter four, and then especially in in the case study of Gao Feng Han, we start to see the emergence of these figures who are able to, to write poetry or prose, to draft calligraphy, but also to carve their calligraphy with a knife. And so we see this kind of fusion or this kind of unification of these different approaches to writing. And so one of the things the book is trying to think about is maybe how we can better appreciate, um, you know, literary acts of expression in the in the early Qing, and in, in the kind of the Hai Qing period, when we think about their interrelationship with these other forms of writing, with calligraphy, with the study of inscriptions, with seal carving. Um, and the, it's this kind of more increasingly kind of physical or material approach to the act of writing an inscription. So for Gao Feng Han, this isn't just a literary genre this is really a material craft it's a way of transforming objects and through that act of transforming objects transforming his own kind of career his own life his own his own reputation Um, so I see the book as really looking at this kind of rematerialization of inscription so it's sort of a counterintuitive thing we would expect you know early inscriptions to be very kind of You know, they're carved, they're written on objects. And then as print culture develops, they become increasingly dematerialized. They become increasingly, you know, remediated in other forms. And one of the things my book is trying to do is actually say that in the late imperial period, it's the opposite. We see this genre that is initially really a form of collaboration or a sort of a hybrid genre that is forged by sort of an interface, as you've been saying, between scholars and artisans. By the early Qing, by the high Qing, it actually becomes kind of a single form of expression, a single form that can unite and can kind of bring together these different approaches to writing, whether that's um, calligraphy, poetry, epigraphy, seal carving, artisanal trademarking, all of these different strategies of mark making can kind of be brought together and considered in some si- in some sort of unity. Um, so that's kind of one of the, yeah, maybe one of the methodological or the kind of historical claims that the book is is really interested in, in pursuing. Um, I think in my field in general, people tend to think of Ming Qing literature just as like drama and fiction. So I wanted to sort of show that there's actually a, a great deal of creativity in these sort of very seemingly superfluous genres, but actually genres that are very central to the ways in which writers at this time thought about literary production, thought about the labor of writing, thought about their relationship to the literary tradition, um, and thought about just sort of the precarious nature of being a writer in the late imperial period. So in a very narrow sense, for scholars of ming literature, the book is just trying to say that we don't just have to read drama, we don't just have to read fiction, we can also look at these maybe small, short, seemingly superfluous, seemingly minor forms and think about the ways in which they actually deal with very sort of serious, very sort of central issues in the kind of the literary culture, the textual culture of the period. Yeah, and then I guess, you know, for like for scholars in material culture and media studies, my training as a literary historian is really to sort of, to think about the value of a literary approach to these inscribed objects. So there's been a lot of work that has tried to sort of You know, think about the agency of objects, the ways objects determine the reactions humans have to them, the way material culture sort of dislodges the centrality of textual interpretation to the study of pre-modern China, all of these kinds of developments. But I still feel like literary scholarship has something to contribute to thinking about how these, you know, early modern, these kind of pre-modern figures saw the world around them and thought about the world around them. And that it can become a way of of showing that the imagination and that creativity still had a role to play in their responses to material culture. So I do, I wanted to move away from thinking just about sort of social distinction, class politics, taste, even though these are all issues that come up, but really to think about how these writers used language, used writing as a as a means of sort of rethinking their engagement with the material world around them. And that we as readers can make these texts speak beyond their immediate historical frame of reference, that they don't just need to become some sort of silent historical evidence, but they can become um, you know, sources that speak to readers in the way that poems or prose essays from other periods do. Um, so even though these forms, yeah, they don't have a great kind of place in the history of Chinese literature. I think actually some of the questions they deal with, some of the emotions they evoke, um, they are resonant and they are relevant to readers beyond you know, scholars of the Ming and Qing period. And I wanted to sort of, through translation, try and bring that out as well to sort of let some of these texts speak. Because, um, you know, questions they deal with around precarity, around what is the meaning of durability, around, you know, the breakdown of kind of frameworks for thinking about permanence. I think these are actually quite sort of resonant issues, quite resonant topics. Um, And I think these texts deal with them in surprisingly sophisticated ways. And I wanted to sort of bring that out.
1: Thank you. This is wonderful. And thank you so much for sharing uh, so much with us today. Um, I personally have learned so much from our conversation. And I'm sure many of the questions that uh, you have explored in the book will be sort of continuing effort. before we sort of sign off today, I I do want to ask you a traditional new books network question, which is what you are currently, what are you currently working on? And are the um, sort of in progress projects also related to this general idea of uh, materiality interfaces of materiality and text. Um, And if you would just Tell us a little bit about (laughs) the exciting upcoming um, projects.
0: I'm working on actually like a couple of different projects right now. Um, But one of them really emerges out of this study, and it's a study of um, the ways in which writers during the sort of the mainstream transition thought about incompletion or fragmentation. Um, So one of the figures I deal with in the introduction of this book on inscription, Zhou Liang Gong, I sort of mentioned that he, you know, he destroyed, he deliberately burnt all of his books just before he passed away. So he get engaged in this kind of act of almost literally self-destruction. Um, and I became particularly interested in this phenomenon of writers burning their books or destroying their books or sort of setting fire to their literary legacy um, and the way in which they, they linked this to the idea that, you um, you know, incompletion can be kind of an expressive or can be a generative artistic statement. Um, So that project is really dealing with the ways in which writers at this time thought about incompletion and fragmentation and how they explored that in poetry and in prose. Um, So yeah, I think that comes out of some of the work that I was doing definitely in the introduction of this book. Um, And, yeah, the interest in the final sections on fragmentation, on erasure, on these kinds of issues, but dealing with a broader range of poems and and prose essays. um, It's almost
1: anti-mark making.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, one of the things the book looks at is this move from thinking about inscription in monumental terms to thinking about inscription as a way of responding to ephemerality, evanescence, loss. Um, And so... Yeah, in dealing with those kinds of questions, I became interested in just the broader landscape of of writing at that time and how these writers thought about textual survival.
1: Sounds wonderful and really intriguing and can't wait to read more about it. Uh, I'm sure... uh articles or talks uh, and the upcoming, well the next book uh, is it's not far in the horizon so I'm really looking forward to hearing more about uh, these exciting next projects so um, Tom, we're nearing the end of our conversation today so I do want to take a moment and thank you for being on the show today and for uh, taking us through this uh, really interesting book uh, that you Wrote first, uh, And I also do want to share with our audience that uh, sort of how I felt when I read through the book. And uh, in, in, in some way, it does feel like I'm following um, Tom's threads of thoughts and sort of rumination on um, sort of what you think about when you look at these objects. So it, it almost feels like a memory palace uh, with uh, overlay with objects. Filled with meaning and broken memories and remembrances, so it's a beautiful book. Uh, it's a beautiful book, uh, and uh, the literary analysis are very nuanced and uh, really, really teasing out the complication and the messiness of uh, dealing with objects, dealing with text, and dealing with memory, dealing with media. So. I do enjoy and learn a lot from our conversation today and from reading uh, your book. Thank you so much and uh, take care.
0: Thank you so much, Huijun.